Part 1 Heterogeneous Hibernia Heterogeneous Adjective Consisting of dissimilar or diverse ingredients or constituents Mixed As in an ethnically heterogeneous population In the first part of this two-part episode, we looked at the American term Black Irish, used to describe dark-complected people with supposedly Irish ancestry. We showed how a folk history claiming that these Black Irish descend from Irish girls and Spanish Armada sailors has almost no credibility. We also took a quick trip through the history of the Irish people as a whole. We explained how the DNA of the Irish has been formed by major waves of invaders, colonizers, and economic migrants over the centuries. Finally, we looked at the people of Ulster in Northern Ireland, a region which supplied a large number of immigrants to America during the 1700s. And having shown what the Black Irish are not, in this episode, we'll focus on what the Black Irish more likely are. And to do that, we'll have to go all the way back to the Normans, Tudors, and Stuarts. But before we do that, a quick word about terminology used in this episode. We've chosen to sometimes use the word gypsy when referring to the diasporic and traditionally nomadic peoples with ancient origins in India. Names given to groups of people with a shared culture or ethnicity are known as ethnonyms. The names people give themselves are endonyms. The names outsiders give to other people are exonyms. The most obvious example of this, in an American context, is the European exonym Indians, used to describe the indigenous peoples encountered during the age of European exploration and colonialism. Hundreds of nations, tribes, and bands obviously had endonyms for themselves and their own exonyms for others. Because of the very nature of colonialism, with mass population movements, pandemics, intermarriage, and a coalescing of many groups, it is often extremely difficult to speak of indigenous peoples by tribal name, with the accuracy due to them. This podcast will always use tribal names where possible. Otherwise, we will use the broad term... American Indians, for simplicity. The term gypsy is equally complex, not least because it is a term introduced into Europe by the Roma, or gypsies, themselves. Upon first entering Europe during the Middle Ages, many Roma portrayed themselves as Egyptian nobility and were thus referred to as Egyptians in numerous early documents. In English, the term Egyptian was eventually shortened to Gypsy. Some, but by no means all members of the modern-day Romani community, now find this term offensive. But much like American Indians, 
There are innumerable divisions and tribes among the Roma, and it can be difficult for outsiders to untangle these complexities. This podcast tries to strike a compromise. When referring to historical Roma, we will tend to stick with terms used at the time. Gypsy, Cigano, etc. When referring to modern Roma people, we will attempt as far as possible to use more appropriate contemporary terms, such as Roma, Romani, Romanishal, Sinti, Kale, Manouche, etc. I'm your host, Brian Halpin, and this is Before We Were White, a podcast exploring the hidden history of Heartland America. Part 2. Becoming Black Irish in the Old World The Black Irish of 1500s Ireland For thousands of years, the economy of Ireland has been based on cattle. A general deterioration from a somewhat drier climate to the familiar wet weather which prevails today began just over 3,000 years ago. Rain and wind, along with a relatively low number of hot and sunny days per year, makes extensive arable agriculture challenging and for earlier farming people, dangerously unreliable. But the upside lies in the constant mild temperatures brought north by the Gulf Stream meaning that for a land lying at such a northerly latitude, Ireland rarely suffers from temperature extremes. While grey skies and rain might make it hard to ripen fruit or protect grain crops, there's one crop which never fails. That supreme crop of Ireland is grass. And as any keeper of livestock knows, While humans can't eat grass, they can eat the animals which can. Even better, humans can eat and preserve dairy products like cheese and butter. In olden times, the Irish tended to favour wild boar and venison for their sources of actual meat. Cattle were considered far more valuable as dairy animals, with calves and bullocks traditionally slaughtered at the end of the growing season. Because the sudden survey of bones during slaughtering time might attract wolves and other scavengers, these bones were piled high and burnt. This is the origin of our word bonfire, bonefire. 
Even though the Irish have used ditches, banks, willow hurdles and hedges to enclose and control cattle since late antiquity, people practiced open husbandry right up until the end of the 1700s. Cattle would be driven onto uplands during the summer, where herdsmen and herdswomen would spend the season living in boolies or small mountain huts, where they could keep an eye on the cattle, milking and doing other essential chores such as spinning and weaving. Which is all to say that before the English conquest of Ireland, the Irish economic system required a great deal of mobility, not only for managing livestock, but for many other things. Various craftspeople and peddlers lived more or less on the road. Woodcutters and charcoal burners moved among the dense forests. Swineherds drove long-legged greyhound pigs through woodlands, fattening them on acorns. Cattle raiding, or cattle rustling, between territories was almost a ritualized sport. So when the first Norman warlords arrived in Ireland, hoping to live the life typical of European feudal nobility at the time, that is to say, living well off the backs of hard-working sedentary peasant farmers and tradesmen, things were rather more complicated than they might have hoped. It is little wonder that these Normans, or Old English in Ireland, eventually found themselves adopting tried and tested Gaelic ways of living. This doesn't mean that the Irish were happy about the situation. While many Gaelic chiefs were powerful enough to withstand the Normans, others weren't. But the Irish who were dispossessed did not simply accept their lot meekly. Many Gaelic and Norse Gaelic soldiers or kerns retreated into the safety of Ireland's still broad woodlands to fight a constant low-level guerrilla war against the invaders. These people of the forests, called woodkerns, from the Irish Eherny Quilla, would be a thorn in the side of the Anglo-Normans and the later Tudor and Elizabethan armies for the next 400 years. The reason we are laying all of this out in such detail is to show how the Gaelic economy and culture in Ireland allowed much greater scope for mobility than was possible in England at the time, just before the Tudor and Elizabethan Wars of Conquest and Colonization. This was a situation which likely suited immigrant Romany, or gypsies, very well indeed. There can scarcely be an ethnic group more invisible than the Irish Romany. This is no accident. Between 1554 and 1783, the very fact of being a gypsy was a hanging offence, at least on paper, throughout most of the British Isles. In practice, this legislation ceased to be enforced after the mid-1600s, yet it hung like a sword of Damocles over the heads of the Romany, meaning they had to tread lightly in their interactions with non-Romany or Gajo. 
We know that gypsies had been in England since at least 1505 during the reign of the Tudor king, Henry VII. Twenty-five years later, his oft-married son, Henry VIII, sought to ban any other Romany from entering England and tried to deport those already present in his realm. Here is a section of the Act passed in 1530. Note that outlandish simply meant foreign at the time. Quote, An outlandish people, calling themselves Egyptians, using no craft nor feet of merchandise, who have come into this realm and gone from shire to shire and place to place, in great company, and used great subtlety and crafty means to deceive the people, bearing them in hand that they, by palmistry, could tell men's and women's fortunes, and so, many times by craft and subtlety, have deceived the people for their money, and also have committed many heinous felonies and robberies to the great hurt and deceit of the people that they have come among. Unquote. Henry VIII's daughter Mary I passed the Egyptians Act in 1554, making the immigration by any gypsy into England a crime punishable by death. These pieces of legislation were ineffectual for many reasons. First, many local lords liked having gypsies around. Many gypsies were skilled craftspeople, basket makers, carpenters, metal workers. Second, many gypsies were welcomed as excellent musicians and entertainers. Third, gypsies were a handy source of seasonal labour, for example, during the hop-picking season in southern England. Finally, if gypsies in England became seriously concerned for their own welcome or safety in one area or jurisdiction, they simply moved on to another place, like Scotland, or Wales, or Ireland. Borders were porous, and besides, there was no centralized government agency or police force with which to track their changing whereabouts. Gypsies are known to have entered Scotland as early as 1514, a place far more welcoming than England. We hear of Highland lairds having affairs with gypsy women, such as the Macpherson who sired a son by one such woman, acknowledging the boy as his own and rearing him in his own household. This boy would go on to become the famous outlaw Jamie McPherson of song and legend. Like many other Scots, Scottish travellers and Scottish gypsies moved freely between Scotland and Ireland. A fiant or writ issued in 1541 mentions a company of Egyptians sojourning in Dublin. It is interesting that this first mention of gypsies in Ireland should be in 1541, the year that the English mother of James V of Scotland died. With Margaret Tudor gone, 
the English no longer bothered to feign respect for the Scottish court, and a vicious war broke out two years later, with England attempting to force the union of the Scottish and English kingdoms, the period known to history as the Rough Wooing. If there was any doubt that the Irish were well acquainted with Romany people during the 1500s, consider this snippet from none other than Francisco de Cuellar, survivor of the Spanish Armada ships wrecked off the coast of Ireland. While on the run from the English in Connacht, de Cuellar found temporary refuge with the chieftain of the O'Rourkes of Brefni in modern-day County Leitrim. Quote, the wife of my master was very beautiful in the extreme, and showed, did me, much kindness. One day we were sitting in the sun with some of her female friends and relatives, and they asked me about Spanish matters and of other parts, and in the end it came to be suggested that I should examine their hands and tell them their fortunes. Giving thanks to God that it had not gone even worse with me than to be gypsy among the savages, I began to look at the hands of each and to say to them a hundred thousand absurdities, which pleased them so much that there was no other Spaniard better than I, or that was in greater favor with them. By night and by day, men and women persecuted me to tell them their fortunes, so that I saw myself continually in such a large crowd that I was forced to beg permission of my master to go from his castle. He did not wish to give it to me. However, he gave orders that no one should annoy me or give me trouble. Unquote. It is very clear from this passage that, one, Irish people were familiar with gypsies in 1588. Two, Irish people already associated gypsies with palmistry and fortune-telling. And three, Irish people associated gypsies with Spain. And why wouldn't the Irish think that gypsy and Spaniard were virtually synonymous? Although Spanish gypsy or Cale auxiliary soldiers had fought for the Spanish during the Reconquista of Granada in 1492, the Spanish soon began a program of systematic oppression of the Moors, Jews and gypsies in the reconquered lands. This is why many Portuguese and Spanish gypsies began appearing in the British Isles during the early years of the 16th century. During the mid-1500s, these Iberian Romani would have been the first Spanish people that many English, Welsh, Scots and Irish had ever seen. Could these people be one source for the people later called Black Irish in America? We'll come back to these Romany of Ireland in a few minutes.
the Black Irish of 1600s Ireland. Remember back in our last episode when we outlined the horrors of the Tudor conquest and the Nine Years' War of the late 1500s and early 1600s? After the flight of the Earls in 1607, which saw much of the Irish nobility going into exile, Irish resistance to English rule became largely limited to bands of outlaws living in the remote hills and forests of places like Tyrone and Donegal. Growing conflict in England and Scotland between Charles I and Parliament seemed to offer a window of opportunity to the Catholic Old English and Gales of Ireland. And in 1641, a full-blown rebellion against English rule erupted in Ulster, soon spreading over the entire island. The part of this wider war, which was being fought in Scotland by Charles I, made many Scots, including Scottish Romany, liable to military conscription. Many of those unwilling to fight ended up travelling over the water to Ireland, with gypsies crossing in such numbers that ships' owners were soon forbidden to carry them. The complexities of allegiances between royalists, Catholics, parliamentarians, Puritans, Gales, Old Norman English, Confederates, Protestant Covenanters, and others has filled volumes. What matters here is that the English parliamentarians won the English Civil War. Charles I lost his head, and the leader of parliamentarian forces in England and Scotland turned his gaze to the West. The campaign of Oliver Cromwell, his officers and soldiers in Ireland between 1649 and 1653 is known in Gaelic as An Cuggy An Era, the war that ended Ireland. The violence and atrocities of this time are the stuff of transgenerational Irish memory and trauma out of an island-wide population of perhaps one and a half million, at least 200,000 people, and quite possibly double that number, died over the course of a decade. Two out of every three dead were women, children, or elderly non-combatants. Even fire and brimstone Protestant clergymen like John Owen, who had followed his soldiering brothers to Ireland, was horrified by the, quote, poor, parentless children that lie begging, starving, rotting in the streets and find no relief. Tories from the Gaelic Tory, or Irish irregular guerrilla fighters fought from their forest and mountain strongholds in places like the Wicklow Mountains right up until 1660, but the game was up. At the outbreak of the Irish Rebellion in 1641, following 30 years of aggressive English and Scottish colonization, 
Irish land holdings had been reduced to 60% of the island. Ten years after Cromwell, that share had been reduced to a mere 20%. For the second time in 50 years, Ireland was made a depopulated wasteland, once again haunted by famine and plague. Only one population saw an increase, that of wolves who gorged on the vast numbers of dead found in fields, in ditches, and along roadsides. The turmoil and population displacements caused by the Puritan Cromwell's New Model Army as it rampaged through Ireland led many historians in the past to characterize this as the point where many gales, both gentry and peasant, were put off the land and out on the road. This idea of people being permanently forced onto the road during times of war and famine has prevailed in the Irish consciousness into modern times, but this view fails to understand the mechanics of colonialism. As the English confiscated Irish lands, gaining legal title to said land, it was first and foremost the Irish landowning upper and middle classes who became dispossessed. These now landless upper and middle classes did not, however, take to the road. Many were relocated to less desirable lands west of the Shannon River. Large numbers emigrated to the Caribbean or America. Still others took ship to the continent, where they served as soldiers under various Catholic monarchs. But any impoverished members of the underclasses who had managed to survive the ravages of war attempted to eke out an existence, as they always had. Those who had farmed the land before Cromwell continued to do so, but were now answerable to new English-speaking tax and rent collectors, masters, landlords, and lords of the manor. Those who had lived a peripatetic existence also continued to do so. Blacksmiths and tinsmiths, peddlers, show people, dancers and musicians, herbalists and healers, cattle drovers, charcoal burners, woodsmen, basket makers, fish and eel sellers, rabbit and wildfowl poachers, horse and pony dealers. The birth of the Industrial Age saw ever greater numbers of the settled Irish peasantry and labouring classes drawn into the emerging industrial economy, where they became in many ways indistinguishable from the industrial working classes of lowland Scotland or England. Dublin became the second most important city of the emerging British Empire, and lines between working-class Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English, Jewish, French Huguenot, Palatine German, Flemish, and many other urbanised peoples became blurred. But the walking people, unlooked shul, the Minkeri, kept walking, as they always had. After Irish independence in the 1920s, Irish settled people needed a way to explain the existence of the pavy or 
Irish travellers, a people who now seemed alien and strange to people so assimilated into British ways of living. And thus was born the widespread view that settled people were the normal Irish, with travellers being some kind of transgressive outliers, a sort of degenerate Irish brought into being by adverse historical events. The Pavi were now described as once normal Irish people who had been put out on the road. This false folk history was often lent official support by the Irish government, culminating in the notorious 1963 report on itinerancy, which characterized Irish travelers as a problem to be solved by assimilation and by the criminalization of nomadism itself. There is an internet meme, which many listeners may have seen, showing a deer standing in the middle of a road with dark forest on either side. This meme challenges us to consider that the deer is not so much crossing a road, but that a road is crossing the deer's forest. In a similar way, it can be said that Irish travellers are an ancient group of Irish people who managed to maintain some semblance of their older way of life, while settled Irish people became integrated into a British social system and economy, a way of life which was being enforced upon them by an occupying colonial power. Genetic studies and DNA projects carried out in Scotland and Ireland confirm a genetic divergence of the Pavi community from the majority Irish population sometime around the 1500s and 1600s. Instead of seeing this time between the Nine Years' War and Cromwell as the point where travellers left mainstream Irish society, Perhaps we should see this as the point where most settled Irish people were forced to become part of mainstream British society, and it is they who left the Pavi. There can be absolutely no doubt that due to shared lifeways, there's been substantial intermarriage between the Irish traveller and Irish Romani communities over the past 450 years. And incredibly, the surnames of many of these Black Irish survive to this day among the people of Southern Appalachia. We'll visit some of these families towards the end of this podcast. The Black Irish of 1700s Ireland, especially in Ulster. Those who listened to the podcast episode immediately preceding this one will have already learned that many, many people arriving in America from the province of Ulster in Ireland during the 1700s 
were not a cohesive or homogeneous group in any ethnic sense. Northern Ireland throughout the 1600s and 1700s was from the outset a multi-ethnic frontier colonial enterprise, later developing into a place of rapid industrialization, especially in the field of textile manufacture. Think of a place like Kansas in the mid-1800s, a hodgepodge of old mix Americans, recent European immigrants, and indigenous peoples. The descendants of people arriving in America during the 1700s from this multi-ethnic colonial Ulster would spend the next 100 to 200 years in America calling themselves English, Welsh, Scots, Irish, or indeed American. The one thing they certainly never called themselves was Scots-Irish. That so-called ethnicity or identity would only be invented after the American Revolution, becoming particularly popular in the 1840s and 1850s as a way to differentiate themselves from what they perceived as the low-life, Catholic, Gaelic-speaking, peasant scum arriving in America to escape the Great Irish Potato Famine. So, which groups were leaving Ulster for America during the 1700s? Well, obviously there were Ulster Scots, It is important to remember that the largest wave of Scottish migrants into Ulster arrived during the 1690s on foot of the Seven Ill Years, a period of widespread famine in Scotland. Were all of these people Scottish Presbyterians? No. Many of these Scottish economic migrants to Ulster would have moved on to America within only one, two, or three generations, and it seems unlikely that they saw themselves as anything other than Scots, and they certainly never called themselves Scots-Irish. Another group leaving Ulster for America were Ulster Catholics, who had plenty of reasons to abandon Ulster for America, and plenty did. English and Welsh families who had arrived in Ulster over the decades following plantation also took boats to America, both as free and indentured immigrants. The surnames of these families are often hard to distinguish from the Scots in Ulster, as there is a great deal of overlap in surnames used by the Borders people of lowland Scotland and northern England. Many English Quaker families were also among the people in Ulster who would press on for America. But who, other than Irish travellers and Irish Romany, might have later been called Black Irish? Remember we mentioned the burgeoning textile industries in Ulster? While the Scots were entering Ulster during the 1690s due to economic pressures and famine, Another group began arriving en masse from France due to religious wars, the Huguenots. We won't get into the complexities of the wars of religion in Europe during the 1500s and 1600s. 
In 1685, the Catholic King of France overturned decades of relative religious toleration and began to persecute the French Protestant population, a group who became known as Huguenots. Usually, when Americans mention religious persecution, they do so in the context of early modern England, in which Puritans were constantly at odds with the established church under Charles I. But events in England and Scotland cannot be compared in any way to what was occurring in France under Louis XIV, with Catholic troops or dragoons being garrisoned in Protestant households in order to intimidate and force conversions. At first, those refusing to convert were strongly encouraged to emigrate. When the flow of emigration became such that it threatened the state treasury, emigration was discouraged and things turned very ugly indeed. Entire villages were torched, with inhabitants being massacred. Protestant Huguenot insurgents fought back from bases in the mountains of southern and southeastern France. What matters to us here is that Britain, as a Protestant country, actively encouraged the immigration of skilled Protestant craftspeople and artisans from mainland Europe, including Flemish people from the Low Countries and the aforementioned French Huguenots. It is estimated that over 10,000 of these réfugiés, where we get our word refugee, eventually made their way to Ireland during the 1690s, with many fetching up in Ulster, where their skill as silk makers and weavers was very much welcomed. As we said already, Huguenot territory was mostly in the south of France, in the Vonage, Languedoc, Cévan, and Camargue regions, between the central Massif Mountains and the Mediterranean. The Camargue region is in fact the traditional heartland of French Romany, or Manouche culture, a people who were also at the receiving end of persecution and also strongly encouraged to emigrate. Many of these refugees, whether Southern French, Mediterranean French, or Manouche, would have been of swarthy appearance in comparison to the native Ulster Irish and Scottish settlers of the province. Could these people have helped to form part of the people called Black Irish in America? It seems likely, for later we find French people living among and beside people from Ulster in early 1700s Pennsylvania in America. We know many of these families, French and Ulster folk, would follow the Great Wagon Trail south into Virginia and the Carolinas over the next few decades, intermarrying along the way. Some still carry French surnames like Ferré, Hewitt, Chapelle, Beaufort, to this day. Of course, all of the French Huguenot women who married into the Scottish or Irish communities around them will have lost their French surnames. But their DNA would live on 
in the black hair and dark eyes of children and grandchildren bearing Irish surnames. Part 3. Becoming Black Irish in the New World The Black Irish in Colonial America, 1607-1784 So, we've taken a look at some of the effects of war and immigration on Ireland during the 1500s, 1600s and 1700s Let's step backwards one more time and cross an ocean to Jamestown in Virginia. Instead of seeing English attempts to plant colonies in America as a standalone enterprise, we should look at it as being part of an ongoing process of colonial expansion begun by the Tudors and continued by the Stuarts on multiple fronts. The Spanish Armada, the attempted colony at Roanoke in Virginia, the Nine Years' War in Ireland, the plantation of Ulster, and the founding of a settlement at Jamestown, all took place during the same short 19-year period. Hardened veterans of the carnage in Ireland would be part of efforts to put English boots on American soil in 1607. Not only this, but it seems that native Irish got roped into the American project as well, probably as disenfranchised prisoners of war, sailors, or impressed servants. This is why we find men like Francis Magnall or Dionys O'Connor at Jamestown. The names are of course Irish, But we can also suppose these men were Irish Catholics due to the artifacts uncovered by archaeologists at the Jamestown site. These items included a lead crucifix with an image of a praying woman, probably Mary, beneath the body of a Christ figure. Archaeologists also found faceted jet beads, characteristic of 17th century Catholic rosaries, and a copper alloy medal showing Mary's crowned head surrounded by seven stars, a design seen later in Catholic miraculous medals commemorating claimed apparitions of the Holy Virgin. Men such as these were only one tiny part of a slow but steady stream of Irish immigration into the American colonies long before the mass immigration caused by the Irish potato famine of the 1840s. This was a stream of Irish immigration 
also wholly unrelated to the waves of immigration from Ulster to Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Georgia. Some made it to America relying on their own resources. Others were transported by the British state against their will, as petty criminals, beggars, vagrants, convicts, or prisoners of war. Many would have been sailors aboard navy and merchant vessels, jumping ship in various ports to escape terrible shipboard conditions and harsh treatment at sea. Still others, both men and women, arrived as indentured servants. Shorn of their old communities, culture, and social structures, these Irish were very much part of the American colonial underclasses, and many took partners, wives, and husbands from among other groups at the bottom of the social pile. Free people of color, runaway slaves and servants, dispossessed indigenous peoples. We find their descendants, or at least people carrying their Irish names, among the earliest individuals and families along the edges of the Anglosphere frontier. George Crohan, born in 1718, was an Irish-born fur trader in the pre-Revolutionary War Ohio country, long before European settlers drove the Indians from those lands. Speaking both Iroquois and Algonquin languages, with a prominent Mohawk woman named Takaroga as his second wife, Crohan sired at least one mixed ethnic family and managed to become a huge and influential landholder. The Revolutionary War saw Crohan accused of treason to the Patriot cause, a trumped-up charge which had more to do with the property ambitions of a certain man named George Washington. Descendants of the O'Sullivan Bear family of County Cork show up in colonial Anglo-America. Scores of O'Sullivan women and children were slaughtered in cold blood in 1602 by English forces under George Carew as they took refuge on Dursey Island. The leader of their clan, Donald Cam O'Sullivan Bear, was in Ulster seeking help from the O'Neills at the time and arrived back home to find a quarter of his kinspeople dead. He gathered around a thousand of his remaining kin and began a desperate march north to seek protection among the free Gaelic chieftains still holding out in Connacht and Ulster. Starving, freezing, and harassed by Irish allies of the English, only 35 souls out of the 1,000 arrived in the north alive. Donald's nephew, Philip O'Sullivan Bear, eventually fled like many others to Spain, where he became a soldier and writer. Descendants of the O'Sullivan Bears show up in colonial America on both ends of the social scale. John Sullivan of New Hampshire would become a general in the Revolutionary War, employing English-style scorched-earth tactics against the Iroquois allies of the British. Other Sullivans would show up in colonial Virginia, intermarrying with the Patawomac Indians there. 
Felons show up out of nowhere in the mountains of Virginia in the late 1700s, intermarrying with herons who were enumerated as free people of color. This Irish surname has evolved into Phelan, spelt F-A-L-I-N, in some parts, with some descendants today apologists for the Confederacy and the so-called lost cause, basically multi-ethnic brown people touting their Irishness while espousing white pride. It is worth noting here that Heron is a surname very common among Romany in the British Isles. A John Tully, born in 1770, pops up in Cumberland County, North Carolina, and some of his descendants today carry a QY-DNA haplotype, a type usually associated with indigenous Americans, not Irishmen. Surprising DNA profiles among those with Irish names are far from rare. Descendants of John McKee, born in 1801 North Carolina, carry a T-haplogroup, usually associated with Arabic people from the Middle East. Southern Appalachia and the Carolinas are full of families who might qualify as Black Irish, in the sense of having deep roots in colonial-era America, while being clearly multi-ethnic and bearing an Irish surname, and not being traceable descendants of so-called Scots-Irish. We find Hogan's and Higgins people, Kennedy's and Connolly's and Moynihan's, who've morphed into Kennedy's and Connolly's and Mooneyham's. One of the names most representative of the multi-ethnic Lumbee Indians of North Carolina is Lowry, from the Gaelic O'Laura. All of these people were made in America, and it is these people who form the greater part of the people later called Black Irish. The Black Irish of the Caribbean In the previous section, we mentioned the fact that many Irish people entered America involuntarily, as transportees, especially in the aftermath of the Confederate Wars and the Cromwellian subjugation of the entire island of Ireland during the 1650s. Thousands upon thousands of newly dispossessed and landless Irish people arrived on Caribbean islands such as Barbados, Jamaica and Montserrat during and immediately after the time of the Cromwellian Protectorate. Some of these middling Irish Catholic gentry tried to save their future and their status by gathering up many of the lower-class impoverished Irish and sailing with them to Caribbean America to make a fresh start. The unluckiest gales, those with no financial means, were often rounded up by Cromwell's henchmen and brought to ports such as Galway to be transported directly to islands such as Barbados. 
anyone classified as a beggar or vagrant was liable to be swept up in these mass deportations, and these so-called vagrants almost certainly included many Irish travellers and Irish Romany. Once these unfortunate souls reached a port in the Caribbean, local businessmen and planters would essentially pay the ship's captain a fee for the right to hold such transported persons under contracts of indenture, usually for a term of between four and seven years. These are the people often quite wrongly called white slaves by racist campaigners seeking to compare a fixed term of servitude with the institution of chattel slavery. These white rights campaigners use the eventual social advancement of the Irish in America to imply some sort of innate white superiority to people of colour. A sort of... Look at us. We were once slaves too, but we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and didn't whine about it. Indentured servitude could be hell, and often was. But to compare it to chattel slavery and the ongoing legacy of hereditary slavery and racism is simply ignorant. Anytime someone attempts to pipe up with this nonsense... All of us can do no better than to ask a few simple questions. When did segregation end for these Irish? Are landlords in New York and Boston refusing to rent to Irish people? How recent exactly was the emancipation of these Irish slaves? When did the last Irishman have to give up his seat on a bus? or be refused entry to a diner? When was the last time police had to hold back a baying mob to allow an Irish girl to enter the front door of her local school? When was the last Irishman lynched for dating a non-Irish white girl? How many people of Irish descent were choked to death or shot dead by police over the past decade? Please. Sit the f*** down and shut the f*** up. Uh, sorry. On we go. The eventual introduction of outright African slave labor alongside these Irish indentured servants did begin to cause problems for the wealthy elites. Many aggrieved Irishmen under indenture regularly made common cause with the Africans toiling alongside them, and the elite planter classes had to work assiduously to drive a wedge between white and black, usually by extending rights to the Irish, which were withheld from Africans. Eventually, the simple laws of economics solved this problem for the wealthy white elites. As the slave population increased, and more and more indentured Irish completed their terms of servitude, it became clear that hardly any of these rowdy and willful Irish people would remain in the Caribbean. Few could afford to purchase the land needed to set up for themselves. The profitability of sugarcane plantations now being run mostly with slave labor on such relatively small islands 
had driven real estate prices skywards. Simply put, there were far better opportunities in places like Virginia and the Carolinas. The poorest of the poor, those unable to even find the money to leave, formed small communities known locally in the Caribbean by various somewhat pejorative names. Red Shanks or Poor Whites and Poor Bakra Johnnies and White Mice or Beckenecks. We know that at least some of these poor Irish had families with Afro-Caribbean people. The Barbadian pop star Rihanna's grandmother Elizabeth is said to have Irish ancestry from one such family of red legs. It has been estimated that of those who could afford to leave the Caribbean, at least 10,000 of these, often still Gaelic-speaking, out-of-contract Irish, waved goodbye to Barbados in the years after 1660. Large numbers also left places like Jamaica, Montserrat, and the Leeward Islands. At least half of these are thought to have entered America throughout the late 1600s and early 1700s, often through southern ports like New Orleans or Charleston. And since you ask, yes, many of these Irish had mixed ethnic families. Black Irish Catholics in Exile, 1690-1745 Meanwhile, back in the British Isles, England's domestic problems continued to reverberate across the Irish Sea. Oliver Cromwell's death saw Charles II, son of the King Charles I, executed by Cromwell's parliamentarians, restored to the throne in 1661. The death of Charles II in 1685 caused a succession crisis, for the next in line to the throne was Charles's brother James, who had converted to Catholicism years earlier. Long story short, the old disputed ground of Protestant versus Catholic, Parliament versus monarchy, was contested again and the Protestant William of Orange was invited by Parliament to usurp the throne held by James. As regards Ireland, this Jacobite-Williamite War of 1689-1691 was more or less a rerun of the Confederate Wars of the 1640s. While the Scots and English fought for a myriad of reasons, for the Irish, it was more simple, a struggle for ethnic and religious rights and a chance to reclaim lands stolen by the English. The Irish declared for the Catholic Stuart King James II and the decisive battle against William was fought on the 1st of July, 1690, near the Boyne River on Irish soil. James and his supporters were defeated and the Irish would have to wait until 1921 
to regain a measure of freedom from English rule. Just as in the aftermath of the Nine Years' War, the Confederate Wars, and the Cromwellian War, many irregular soldiers waged a doomed guerrilla campaign during the wider conflict. And even for a brief time after the defeat of the Stuart army in the field. These rapparees included Limerick men such as Michael Galloping Hogan, who would refuse to accept terms of surrender laid out in the Treaty of Limerick, fighting on for another six months before eventually going into exile in France with the last of the wild geese the term given to Jacobite supporters who left Ireland's shores. Michael Hogan was right, too. The English reneged on the promises made in the treaty. The wild geese would go on to found families and serve with distinction in the armies of France, Spain, Portugal, Austria, Italy, Sweden and Poland. Michael Hogan himself would go on to help the Portuguese beat the Spanish at the Battle of Campo Maior in 1712, retiring in that country and raising a family with descendants in Portugal to this day. The O'Higgins family of Sligo and Meath, dispossessed a generation earlier by Cromwell, would see later descendants such as Ambrosio O'Higgins serve as royal governor in Chile while his son, Bernardo O'Higgins, would fight in the War for Chilean Independence, becoming Chile's first head of state following success in that struggle. Sons of the Jacobite Hennessy and Old Norman Nagel family of Cork would serve in the French military, with one grandson, Richard Hennessy, becoming the founder of the world-renowned company producing Hennessy Cognac. Closer to colonial America, John Riley would pledge his service to Spain and his grandson, Alejandro Riley, would serve in Puerto Rico, Cuba and Spanish Louisiana, where he abolished Indian slavery and put laws in place allowing for the easier manumission of slaves. Laws also allowing enslaved Africans to purchase their own freedom. Five or six years after the 1691 Treaty of Limerick, a girl would be born in Cork to a servant woman named Mary Brennan, who had been made pregnant by her employer, a married lawyer named William McCormack. Having enraged the family of his lawful wife, William left Cork for London, bringing his young daughter Anne with him. For reasons unknown, McCormick chose to dress and raise his daughter as a boy, training her to be a legal clerk, but now calling her Andy. McCormick made contact with the girl's mother, Mary Brennan, and together the three of them emigrated to South Carolina, where Mary would die when Anne was only 12 years old. Anne's father, by now known simply as William Cormack, eventually accumulated a sizable fortune through the mercantile business. But without her mother, Anne soon fell in with the wrong crowd. A sailor and small-time crook began courting Anne, 
most likely with his eye on a sizable dowry. Father and daughter became estranged, and Anne was kicked out of the family home. She married her ne'er-do-well boyfriend, and the two of them struck out for the Bahamas, where Anne would fall in with an even wilder crowd. She became pregnant by another sailor who had caught her eye, and when her husband refused to grant her a divorce, she simply ran away to sea with her new beau, keeping the married name she took from her first husband, James. Her second sailor lover was none other than John Calico Jack Rackham, and this lively Irish girl would be known to history as Anne Bonny. That Anne Bonny, Irish Pirate of the Caribbean. While only some of these aforementioned Irish exiles and emigrants have any direct bearing on the people later called Black Irish in southern Appalachia, they are included here to illustrate the ethnic fluidity, range, and influence of Irish people in places far from their tiny island homeland. The Silent Underground River, 1718-1776 Emigration of people other than the so-called Scots-Irish continued from points all over Ireland via ports in Dublin, Belfast, Cork, Galway and Derry throughout the 1700s. Remember the wars of religion which were raging inside France during the late 1600s and early 1700s between the Catholic government and Protestant Huguenots? The exact same William of Orange who had deposed James II and defeated his forces in Ireland was simultaneously leading a grand alliance against Louis XIV of France on the European continent. We've already heard how these wars of religion and power caused a mass exodus of French Huguenots to places like the Dutch Republic, England, Ireland and America. But at the same time, tens of thousands of German peasants had been made refugees, displaced by violence and famine. Many travelled up the Rhine as far as the major port city of Rotterdam in order to flee via boat to the UK or America. German Sinti, or German Romani or German Gypsies, were being viciously persecuted in the contested lands of Alsace-Lorraine and the Rhineland Palatinate between eastern France and western Germany at this time. Many of these gypsies fled along with Palatine Germans to Rotterdam, where they spread outwards to other coastal towns and ports of the Baltic and North Seas, seeking and negotiating terms for a passage abroad to the UK or its American colonies. How does this relate to Irish people? Most of these Palatines had their hopes set on making it to America, but in 1709, a council of Irish, 
gentlemen landlords, convinced Queen Anne to divert over 533 Palatine refugee families to rural Ireland in the hope of creating a more cooperative population of tenants. These poor Palatines, as they were called, were allowed to pay rates of rent far below that of their Irish neighbours. So, of course, they encountered much local hostility. Within three years, over 300 of these families had given up and headed to Dublin in the hope of finding paid work there. Some eventually moved back to England, but others, just like many French Huguenots had done, eventually boarded boats for America. The names of those Palatines who arrived in America via Ireland are scattered to this day throughout southern Appalachia, but I've yet to hear an American claim to be descended from the German-Irish. Amusingly, some of the people in America with the surname Vance, who see themselves as distinctly Scots-Irish, are more likely descended from Germans who left Ireland bearing the surname Vence, spelt W-E-N-T-Z. Analysis of surnames and contemporary descriptions of the swarthy appearance of these Palatines leave little doubt that many Jewish and Sinti people must have been among their number. One final point regarding immigration to America from Ireland prior to the 19th century. Every uprising, rebellion or war fought on Irish soil had created orphans, widows, invalids, beggars and paupers. The Irish under the British colonial heel became part of the mass of people around the world perceived by the English as lesser humans, belittled, demonized and demeaned, along with Africans, Moors, Asian Indians, Chinese and many others. As the Industrial Age began, the underclass victims of empire soon began arriving in cities like Dublin, Bristol and Liverpool as a supply of cheap labour, impoverished rural Irish among them. Cut off from old ways of social support or the traditional matchmaking of rural communities, these new urban Irish were far more likely to marry across ethnic lines. They were also never far from sinking into a life of vagrancy, alcoholism, begging or crime. Almost everyone knows that colonial Australia began as a British penal colony in 1788. Fewer realise that the transport of convicts there only began once the American Revolution made the dumping of convicts in the 13 colonies no longer possible. The exact number of Irish prisoners of war, beggars, vagrants and criminals sent to the American colonies during the 1600s by the Stuarts, Cromwell and the Williamites is difficult to ascertain. But between the years 1718 and 1776, we know that over 52,000 convicts were sent to America from the UK, including Ireland. Decades of war, devastation and dislocation in Ireland had created a huge population of 
street orphans, the uneducated, the untrained, the unemployed, the underclothed, the cold, and the hungry. Another hammer blow arrived in the form of the great frost and drought of 1739 to 1740, which destroyed most stocks of seed potatoes, leading to a famine in Ireland which killed hundreds of thousands of the poorest Irish. A once proud people had been reduced to a state of degradation in which to be a rural Gaelic speaker was to wear the badge of the lowest underclass, reduced almost to savagery. Many Irish had been turned into a desperate people, a people often forced into a life of crime or vagrancy, and thus the most likely to end up in a courtroom to find themselves sentenced to transportation overseas. Among the many Irish convicts sent to America, there were almost certainly many Irish travellers and Irish Romany. Each of those generations who survived the shocking events of 1580, 1607, 1641, 1650, 1690, 1740, or 1798, must have felt as if God himself had deserted Ireland. Perhaps he had, because there was more in store for the Irish in 1845. Antochus Moore, The Great Hunger The Great Hunger of the 1840s By the late 1700s, even the Presbyterians of Ireland, including those in Ulster, were sick of the high-handed governance of Ireland by a tiny Anglican Protestant minority. A minority which treated Ireland as little more than a milk cow for sustaining the interests of England. For one great moment, inspired by the ideals of the American and French revolutions of 1776 and 1789, Protestant and Catholic stood united, and one last great rebellion against English domination took place in 1798. The Estates General of France even landed troops under Jean-Joseph Humbert in County Mayo in the late summer of 1798, but they had arrived too late. After a promising start to their campaign, they were defeated a month later by Generals Lake and Cornwallis. The same Cornwallis who had surrendered years earlier to American forces at Yorktown. The French were allowed to return home to France. The Irish were bayoneted to death in a bog, while those captured were summarily hanged. The Kingdom of Ireland was subsumed into the UK by the Act of Union in 1800. 
Because we are primarily interested in understanding the origins of the Black Irish, we won't dwell at great length on the causes of the Great Famine which began 47 years after the 1798 rebellion. Put simply, through no fault of their own, the Irish underclasses had become overly reliant on the potato for sustenance, on an island which had doubled its population every 100 years since 1600. Even worse was the situation under English penal laws, in which Irish tenant farmers were forced to divide their land equally among their children upon death. This meant that land holdings had become smaller and smaller with every generation, until many families were forced to eke out a living from farms of less than five acres, and often even less. Potatoes became the only crop able to sustain a family on such a small holding. But for a number of years during the 1840s, the main potato crop in Ireland failed due to blight, a mould caused by an airborne fungus-like microorganism. Good governance could have easily alleviated the worst effects of this catastrophe. Good governance of Ireland from Westminster and Dublin Castle is, of course, a centuries-old oxymoron. Agricultural produce continued to be exported from Ireland for cash, while over a million people dropped dead of starvation and famine-related diseases in the fields, houses, and along roadsides. At least another million would emigrate, with most seeking passage to America, but perhaps 200,000 took the cheaper crossing of the Irish Sea for ports in Liverpool and Glasgow. The sheer horror of the situation can be gleaned from contemporary newspaper accounts, like this from the Glasgow Argus in 1847. Quote, The streets of Glasgow are at present literally swarming with vagrants from the sister country, and the misery which many of these poor creatures endure can scarcely be less than what they have fled or been driven from at home. Many of them are absolutely without the means of procuring lodging of even the meanest description and are obliged consequently to make their bed frequently with a stone for a pillow. Unquote. This is from an article entitled Irish Destitution and Disease, published in the Glasgow Courier, also in 1847. Quote, Without the slightest exaggeration, that this city is now in as bad a condition as respects Irish pauperism and disease as any city or town in the most afflicted districts of Ireland itself. Independent of the infirmary and every other customary receptacle for fever patients being quite filled with these persons, they are now to be seen every day squatting in swarms on the riverbanks beside the bridges, and individuals are often found stretched in a state of suffering and covered with rags and filth in the public thoroughfares. Unquote. Michael Condon, a priest who was based in the east end of Glasgow, recalled that the fever scenes were truly awful. 
I had to administer sacraments to the living as they lay chattering unconsciously to the corpses beside them. Many landlords back in Ireland had decided that it would be cheaper to export their starving tenants than to pay additional taxes meant to feed them. This led to the infamous coffin ships, which left ports in Liverpool, Cork, Limerick, Sligo and elsewhere for Canada and the USA, crammed with people already weakened by extreme hunger and disease. Between 10 and 20% of passengers on these ships died en route. Of those who made it ashore alive, another 10% were gravely ill and often ended up in overcrowded quarantine hospitals. Nativists in places like New York and Boston, the 19th century equivalent of the worst MAGA types today, often welcomed Irish immigrants with a hail of stones or even organised arson attacks on quarantine hospitals. Other Irish succumbed to cholera and typhus outbreaks in overcrowded slums or while working as labourers on the railroads and other industrial development projects. For those who survived, the future would mean facing into years of being treated as little more than human scum. Many Irish signed up for the military as a quick fix to poverty with some being sent immediately to the border with Mexico, as the USA sought to engineer a war with Mexico as an excuse to annex more land. A plan which was ultimately successful, seeing what is now New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Nevada and parts of Colorado and Wyoming, added to the USA's real estate portfolio in 1848. It is little wonder that many Irish immigrants saw the American state and the American army, with its bigoted Protestant nationalism, as little better than the UK, which they had just escaped. Soldiers such as Sean Porrig O'Reilly of County Galway switched sides, forming the Battalion de San Patricio, or St. Patrick's Battalion, which fought with great distinction for the Mexican cause. These stories are shared here to give a picture of where the Irish stood in the American social hierarchy before they jumped aboard the white bandwagon, realizing that being part of the correct racial caste was the only currency with any lasting value in their new home. you got to measure up to lads. Do you not think, uh... What? Well, like, maybe we're a little white for that kind of thing. 
you not get it, lads? The Irish are the blacks of Europe, and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland, and the Northside Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Epilogue. I'm black and I'm proud. So, here is a roundup of reasons for the existence of dark Irish people. Black Irish, Source 1, The Black Irish of Ireland. The Irish Romany. Yes, they existed and still exist. Sometimes an illustration helps, so here's one. We find descendants of Anglo-Irish clergyman Robert William Renison of County Offaly in America today, still carrying an H-haplotype, which is almost proof of Romany ancestry. History is silent on whether the Renison men were actually Romany, or if the wife of a Renison was less than honest about who caused the bump in her belly. Did a brown-eyed handsome man pass through town? We'll probably never know. Black Irish, Source 2 Earlier in this episode, we spoke at length about the Pavi and learned that many Irish traveller families have intermarried with Irish, Scottish, Welsh and English Romany. The surname Collins is well known among Irish travellers and is a huge name among the Melungeon people of Appalachia. Endless essays have been written about these Collins people, usually noting their dark complexions. Collins' descendants make various ancestral claims, but what is certain is that many Collins men carry an R1B haplogroup, which is the most common haplogroup in Ireland. While it is extremely likely that the Collins people in Appalachia share ancestors from a variety of ethnicities, including African and Indigenous American, this writer is yet to hear anyone suggest Irish traveller ancestry, which does seem rather odd. Black Irish, Source 3, Lascars. Irish men working for the Irish East India Company often imported South Asians into England, Ireland and America as personal servants or as a source of cheap labour. A huge percentage of common sailors on British naval vessels during the 1700s were in fact Asians recruited or impressed into service from English and Portuguese trading colonies in India. This meant that a large number of South Asian traders, soldiers and sailors found their way to English, Irish and American shores. East Indian domestic servants and Lascars often received one-way passages, and if they parted ways with their employers or ship, they usually were left to fend for themselves without any resources. Many were reduced to vagrancy in port towns such as Cork, Liverpool, or Charleston, South Carolina, where they formed part of the social underclasses 
alongside the Irish. We've already mentioned French Huguenots and French Manouche. We've also outlined a brief history of German Palatines in Ireland, along with German Sinti or Romany. The list of dark-complected people in Ireland over the centuries could go on and on, whether it be John Sutto, a black sailor shipwrecked off County Louth in 1783, who found work and courted a local Irish girl named Margaret O'Brien, a girl who happily accepted his advances. We know this because their marriage was announced in the local newspapers. Anyone lucky enough to attend an opera between 1750 and 1753 in Dublin might have heard the acclaimed singing of Rachel Baptiste, a black woman. In the years after the Irish famine, men of colour like Andrew Tobias, a native of County Cavan, could be found working in New York, surprising his neighbours and co-workers with his strong Irish accent, which seemed to them unmatched to his physical appearance. All of the foregoing is not to claim that most Irish are not pale in complexion. <laughs> they are. But historically, Ireland is far more multi-ethnic than most realise. And to the final part of our roundup, becoming black Irish in America. We've learned of the Irish who traveled both voluntarily and involuntarily to the Caribbean, and how Irish people, male and female, intermarried or had families with Afro-Caribbean people there. We've heard about the Irish in Spanish and French America. But Anglo-America was in no way exempt from inter-ethnic mingling. We might mention the extraordinary family of Michael Morris Healy, a man born in County Roscommon in 1796, who became a successful cotton planter in 19th century Georgia and sired a number of children by an enslaved woman he had purchased. While this could have easily been a familiar and bleak story of sexual exploitation, something different occurred. Michael Healy came to love his partner and their children deeply, so much so that he sent his children north to be educated. It was illegal under Georgia law for Healy to free his wife or children, either while he lived or by manumission in his will. The mixed-ethnic Healy children achieved a number of firsts. Patrick Francis Healy becoming the first part African president of Georgetown University. His brother Michael Healy became the first part African to command a U.S. Coast Guard ship. Another brother, James Healy, would become the first part African Catholic bishop in America. We already mentioned the Sullivans of Stafford County, Virginia, an ostensibly Irish family enumerated in census forms as free people of colour. This family said to have intermarried with the Patawomac people of Virginia. <laughs> 
Remember the brigand or rapparee Galloping Hogan from the Siege of Limerick in 1691? It is tempting to wonder if his extended kin or uncles are the same Hogans who appear out of nowhere in colonial Virginia during the late 1600s. After all, once Limerick had fallen, around 20,000 soldiers and rapparees were shipped out of Ireland as part of the Wild Geese. This number would have included between one and 2,000 women and children. It had been intended that these people would travel together to France to form James II's army in exile, but many had had enough. Contemporary witnesses noted that at least some Jacobite soldiers had to be forced on board ships when they learned of their destination. This is understandable, as lower rank-and-file soldiers were not allowed to bring their families, nor even travel home to tell their families where they were going. It is said that many deserted while en route from Limerick to Cork, the port where ships bound for France awaited them. Did many of these men prefer to find a ship bound for America? We find an Edward Hogan, born in 1704, living in the back country of Virginia Colony, drowning when his canoe overturned while crossing the James River in 1750. His son William Hogan was said to have married an Indian woman, while another son, Edward Jr., was an illiterate slaveholder with a household including free persons of colour. Elsewhere, another man bearing this surname, Harrison Hogan, was born in 1816 in Kentucky and died at an advanced age near Bull Creek, Indiana. While it's not quite on the same level as refusing to surrender the city of Limerick, this Hogan, at the age of 70, held off a number of lawmen at the end of a shotgun from his fortified flatboat on multiple occasions. It seems that one of his former wives... He had at least four, not including consorts. One ex-wife was seeking a court order against some of Harrison's property. It is believed that all efforts at enforcement were unsuccessful. While his deep family origins are obscure, he was said to have had black hair and black eyes. One last Irishman is worth a mention. Brian or Bryant Ward, a trader among the Cherokee during the 1700s. Ward is notable for having been briefly married to Nanya He or Nancy, a woman who carried the honorific title Beloved Woman of the Cherokee, due to her exploits in helping defeat a band of Muscogee Creek in battle after her first husband, Sula or Kingfisher, had fallen in battle. Brian Ward would eventually return to the world of the white man, moving down to Georgia to live out his days until his death in 1815. He did leave behind children, though, including a daughter by Nanyahi named Betsy, who would marry Joseph Martin, son of an English immigrant to Virginia. Another of Brian Ward's children by another woman, a son named John Ward, would himself marry a half-Cherokee woman named Catherine McDaniel. 
more Irish connections. We can't leave before reminding our listeners that McDaniel is an English corruption of the Irish surname MacDonnell, and that both Ward and MacDonnell are surnames very, very common among the Irish traveller community. It is a terrible thing to lose one's language. It's even worse to lose one's entire cultural memory and to replace that cultural memory with empty iconography. Trick-or-treating at Halloween. Wearing of the green on St. Patrick's Day. Shamrocks. Rainbows and leprechauns. Maybe Guinness, U2 or Sinead O'Connor. There is a field in County Kerry where the English murdered hundreds of war prisoners in 1580 during the Desmond rebellions in Munster. Mostly Italians and Spaniards sent by Rome to help arm the Irish. But it wasn't only soldiers murdered. It was women and children too. For in those days families often followed the armies, carrying food and other supplies, feeling safer than if left at home to face possible rape, pillage or burnings. Hundreds upon hundreds of people were made to kneel in a field beside the sea where they were beheaded. Ruthlessly, systematically, in cold blood. It is said that the executions took over two days. A few of the select had their arms broken with irons and were left to scream in pain for a day before being hanged. And no, there were no Spanish survivors to settle down among the local Irish and raise black-haired families. Today, American tourists go by in buses, doing the Ring of Kerry, passing little townlands and place names like Gordagary and Gordnagam, both anglicized versions of Gaelic names. The English colonizers who arrived later in the aftermath of the Nine Years' War didn't even speak Gaelic enough to know what the locals were saying. They just wrote it down as they heard it. And they didn't bother to erase it because they didn't value the colonized enough to care why they called certain places by certain names. Gordagari is Gordagari field of the cutting. Gortnagan is Gortnagan, field of the heads. Walter Raleigh was part of this execution party. He had his poet friend Edmund Spencer along with him, much like the pants-wedding biographer of English Bob in Clint Eastwood's revisionist Western film Unforgiven. And in another major film, 
Spencer's good Queen Bess gets to be played in resplendent glory with great sympathy by the estimable Kate Blanchett, as though the life of Queen Elizabeth was a tragedy of unrequited romance, played out to the rustle of silk and the sound of lutes. As if this English monarch was not complicit in, or somehow unaware of, the horror her regime was visiting upon Ireland. Yet her letters and correspondence make very clear the nature of her ruthless ambition. And just as the time of the Tudors has become little more than material for endless costume dramas, being Irish-American has become little more than a small list of symbols and ciphers meant to represent something once concrete, which is now lost and forgotten. And for some people, yeah, being Irish has become little more than a badge of whiteness. 1580, 1607, 1641, 1650, 1690, 1740, 1798, 1848, 1867, 1916. Every generation of Irish people for 500 years has risen up in rebellion against colonialist oppression. Not once in those 500 years did the Irish define themselves in terms of skin color. By culture, yes. Language and law, yes. By loyalty to clan or chief, yes again. By religion and homeland, oh yes. But never by complexion. That could only happen in race-obsessed America. So for certain Americans, being Irish sometimes includes a claim of black Irish ancestry, but with no real sense of what that might actually mean. Pick a name. Begley, Barry, Kennedy, Collins, Conley, Doherty, Dunn, Higgins, Hogan, Lowry, McDaniel, McGuire, McMahon, Mullins, Murphy, Riley, Rourke, Ryan, Sullivan, Sweeney, Ward. The list goes on and on. These are common surnames from places like the Carolinas and Southern Appalachia, where being Black Irish might mean any number of things. Being part African or Afro-Caribbean. Being part French Huguenot or Manouche. Having Lascar ancestry from India. Having Padawomac or Cherokee or Iroquois or other indigenous ancestry. Having Palatine German ancestors who were 
German Jews or German Sinti. Having Irish traveler or Irish Romani ancestors who were transported to America. Or being related to the Lumbi Indians or the people called Melungeons. Just don't mention White Pride or the Spanish Armada. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by your host, Brian Halpin. Before We Were White main theme, performed by Dave McLaughlin, Rodney Lancashire, Ray Cohn, and Steph West. Visit the Before We Were White YouTube channel for bonus content related to each episode. Episode notes, resources, show transcripts, and further reading lists are available to supporters on our members page at beforewewerewhite.com. Supporters are also added to our social media forum, where they can field questions pertaining to podcast episodes and much more. Our work would simply not be possible without the ongoing help of our friends. Heartfelt thanks go out to the rock-steady crew of Leanne, Jane, Pamela, Tara, and all of those listeners who like and share links to our podcast episodes. An especially warm welcome to our new patrons this month, Kelly, Paula, Sandy, John, Karen, and Elizabeth. If you would like to support us as well, please visit www.beforewewerewhite.com forward slash support. Every contribution helps, large or small. Thank you.